Hi, this is Tony Dieter Lizzi, best-selling author and illustrator of hopefully one of your kids' favorite books, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Have you ever been to Disneyland? Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. Listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show. And I've always loved classical children's lit. And what's happening now is there's a lot of dystopic fiction. And then there's also real life problems. And I wanted to do what I call a modern day mashup of an old fashioned children's book. And that's kind of what they are. And Lorraine is also this giant horror buff as well. And she believes in alternate universes. Am I lying? Uh, yes, you are, but... <laughs> Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at www.thegbbpodcast.com and on all those social networks at The GBB Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. And this week, I am joined by... Shiri. And you can find me at SW Sondheimer on Twitter and irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. Fantastic. How have you been? I'm good. How are you? Good. Trying to stay cool this summer. This week had a weird summer. It got really, really hot, and now it's cooled off and feels kind of nice. And my house is still disgusting, though. Like, the house doesn't cool off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a good time to stay in and yeah. listen to a really good audiobook. Right, Jamie? That sounds fantastic. <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody else is just burning up or, you know, road trips. So mm-hmm. I've I talk- did not mind being in the car for a good chunk of a weekend a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's funny. We've talked about um, audiobooks a, a lot on this show, but um, not recently. We've had a bunch of um, voice actors. I hate to call them voice actors because they're actors, but actors who do a lot of um, either animation, narration, um voices or audiobook narration and uh i've talked about this before but it's audiobooks have been amazing with my kids they that's what they listen to every night when they fall asleep like they don't listen to music they don't they don't i mean they'll read to themselves but then like as they fall asleep as they're lying there in the dark they'll just turn on um we gave them our very old like ancient ipods with a little spinny wheel you know like the original <laughs> ipods and so they loaded those up with with audiobooks and that's what they do they just sit there and if it's my daughter she'll invariably listen to harry potter one of them for like the umpteenth time does she listen to the stephen fry ones those are the no best she ones. listens to the jim dale ones oh we don't have the stephen fry ones i don't i've never even heard them they're fantastic yeah. Well, the Jim Dale ones is good too. Our oh, Jim Dale ones are good. Um, he does. I mean, he doesn't do like crazy outlandish voices, but he does a really good job, and everybody has a unique voice. So it's interesting because I've only started listening to audiobooks regularly recently, um, and it's amazing the difference that the reader can make, the oh, voice, yeah. the actor. Um, James Marsters does um, all the 
Dresden books. Okay. And he's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm not sure they would be as much fun with somebody else um, listening to them or uh, reading, reading them. them. So Yeah, it's it, it really is. I mean, audiobooks, obviously, if you think about it, it makes total sense, but they they are made or broken by the narrator. You know, you could have somebody who is like a world famous actor or actress, you know, but when they get there, if they read the book, like, oh, she jumped back in surprise. She did not see that coming. <laughs> you know, it's like, it could be awful. It could be, it you, you just kills any interest you have in the book. We've had a couple experiences like that with books, um, again, that my kids were really excited to listen to. And they started listening and they're like, wow, this is awful because <laughs> the narrator was really bad. Yeah. And the um, the older Star Wars books, they're they're changing up readers with the newer ones. But the the older ones, it's um, mostly the uh, the guy who did a lot of the voices on Clone Wars, the guy who did all the clones and Admiral J- Yularen. And <laughs> he's really great because he does all the voices anyway. <laughs> yes. James Arnold Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had him on the show, and uh, yeah, he he does a, a thousand and one different <laughs> voices, and yeah, he did a he did a number of those audiobooks. But yes, you know the older one, the the older ones are interesting because um, they they often well at least with the comics they did this in a bit. I don't know if they did it so much with the books, but they did it as like a full like radio play sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the new some of the newer Leia Princess of Alderaan was like yeah, they the new ones they've put in a lot of like sound effects and music and background noise sometimes, but they're not necessarily like full like a full dramatization with mm-hmm. different people for every voice. You know, that some of the older Star Wars books they did that for. I listened to Thrawn and I couldn't find it anywhere, but I'm pretty sh- so there are parts that are like Thrawn's inner monologue, yes. and I'm pretty sure it's um. Lars Mikkelsen, the guy who did – he did the Thrawn voice on Rebels. Oh. He's Mads Mikkelsen's brother. I – that wasn't whoever narrated the rest of the book? No. It was a different voice? I think so. When he does the Thrawn dialogue, it's slightly different than those other parts. Oh, see, I could I li- be wrong. I'm going to have to go check that because I listened to it too and I, I thought it was just the same person doing both voices. It could just be altered in production, but – Having watched Rebels, those parts sounded almost identical to me. So if it wasn't, the guy who was reading it did a really good job. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, the reason we're talking audiobooks and narrators and all that is because this week we talked to Amy Efron and Lorraine Newman. And the reason we had both of them together is because Amy has just written her second in what will be a series of um, – I guess if you want to put a label on it, they're like middle grade books. Um, Car- Castle in the Mist and the new one is Carnival Magic. Uh, and she's written these two books. And Lorraine Newman, who the two of them are just lifelong friends, uh, and she did the narration for it. And she did a really, really good job. Uh, if if Lorraine Newman, if the voice sound, if not the voice, oh yeah, maybe the voice, if the voice or the name sounds familiar to you, but you can't place it, she was one of the original cast members of Saturday Night Live. And she's also had just a really long career uh, acting and doing voiceover and doing narration. And now the two of them came together for these books. Now, Sherry, you, uh, your daughter read the books, no? No, I read them. 
You read them. I thought you read them together with her. I, I am planning to read them to her. Uh, we were in the middle of okay. something else. I can't remember what it was. They were listening to an audiobook, actually. <laughs> School for Good and Evil, they were listening to. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, we listened to the first uh, Castle in the Mist together, uh, the audiobook. And uh, it went over really well. My, my kids really liked it. So they haven't listened or read Carnival Magic yet, but they're really looking forward to it. Uh, but this was a great conversation. We talked... We talked a lot, a lot of stuff, didn't we? I mean, we it was did. just we did. Yeah, so foremost of which is that um, Lorraine, you revealed, uh, was Big Bird and follow that bird. <laughs> no, she was not Big Bird. Oh, I thought you said she, she was the voice of Big Bird. She was uh, Mama Dodo. That's right. So okay. in follow that bird, uh, if anybody remembers, because I love that movie, the Sesame Street movie where Big Bird, Big Bird, like runs away and they all have to find <laughs> him and track him down. He meets a family of dodo birds, and these are also huge, oversized puppets, people in costumes. And Mama Dodo uh, was the voice of Mama Dodo was Lorraine Newman. She was not in the costume, but she did do the voice. And if you know, if you are of a certain age, as Jamie and I both are. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that movie was a huge part of your childhood. Oh yeah. So. Oh yeah. Man, I love me some Sesame Street. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, so we talked about a lot. This these are the first books, the first books for young audiences that uh, Amy Efron has written, and so we talk about how that came about, why why the shift um, to a younger audience, where the story came from. Um, why it was set where it is, whether how the plot came about. We talk a lot about that. We talked about what Lorraine brought to the book that wasn't necessarily on the page or in Amy's mind. You know, we talked, she talked quite a bit. They shared some stories about uh, things that came out in the booth while she was recording where, and Amy was like, Whoa, I totally didn't see that coming, but that was amazing. So as a creator, as a writer, that must be, unbelievable to, to sort of watch and have it just sort of come to life in front yeah, of you. Yeah, and they were fun to talk to together because, as Jamie said, they've been friends, I think they said, since their early 20s. Um, and they really adore each other. And it's it's nice when people who are working together also have that sort of feeling for each other as well. So yeah, yeah. they was- share a lot of really fun stories. Um, they bounce off of each other a lot. And the, there's one thing that I read about Lorraine that I did not have a chance to ask her about. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it now. But did you know, Shiri, and listeners everywhere, when she was younger, she studied mime with Marcel Marceau? I did not know that. Now you do. Wow. Apparently. that Unless the Google is lying to me. But I read that when she was younger and... She there. She came to like kind of like a point in her career. I don't want to mess up the details, but it was either she had applied for some things and didn't get them, or she was rejected somewhere. Anyway, it's something where she was sort of like thrown for a loop a little bit, and so she said, "Ah, screw it! I'm going to go study mine with Marcel Marceau because that's what you do, apparently." (laughs) Um, But I would would have loved to ask her about that and sort of get her recollections and and memories. But uh, I think that's amazing. That that is amazing. Yeah, that is it. Because not everybody can say something like that, no. you know? Like, no. Anyway. anyway, I'm just a little bit jealous. <laughs> uh, 
thank you guys for coming back week after week, uh, hitting subscribe, following us on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, following me, following Justin, following Shiri. Um, we're just going to bring you right in at this point, Amy Efron and Lorraine Newman, guys. Take care. Amy and Lorraine, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk. I know this was uh, a little bit hard to schedule. We had a bunch of schedules that had to come together, but thank you so much for making it work. Our pleasure, huh? Yeah, really happy to meet you both. Um, I wanted to start off by asking about your friendship and how long you guys have been friends and when you, when you first met. Well, uh, we met for a first... second. Go ahead. Well, I first was aware of Amy in high school. <laughs> um, she hung out with the Palance sisters, uh, Jack Palance's daughter, daughters. And uh, I just remember Amy having this black sheet of long hair that stood down, you know, that just went down her back. And I was always intrigued by her, but I did not know her until uh, Saturday Night Live. See, I have a completely different memory. I have a memory of this completely interesting person who is very shy, who used to hang out by her locker, and who I used to talk to and who I thought I was sort of friends with, even though we didn't hang out with each other, which is how we ultimately connected, because I always thought she was one of the most interesting people in L.A., or Beverly Hills, whatever our community. <laughs> um, and she, you could just see how in, she was just, she was kind of amazing. But she was kind of a loner, and it is true to say that we didn't hang out in the same circles. But I just thought she was amazing. Hmm. Oh, and then you. it turned out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> well, you're not always right about that in high school. It's a hard it's a hard call. Isn't it though? When you go to reunions, you discover all sorts of things that people thought. <laughs> and it's like you um, did, and then we were like both in the how, how did that work? Yeah, I know, right? Um, and then we were both in New York and Lorraine was on SNL and I had briefly written for the National Lampoon. And I was dating one of the SNL writers, uh-huh. and we found each other. And then there have been points in our lives where we've been roommates. She's the only roommate I've ever had, like roommate, roommate. Um, really? I didn't know that. I, yeah, another thing uh, I did not know. <laughs> also, another thing that uh, Amy and I discovered was there was a toy store in Beverly Hills called Uncle Bernie's, and it had a tree that grew, grew right through the ceiling, and the tree served lemonade. It had a spout, and we realized that we had both drunk from Uncle Bernie's uh, lemonade tree, and that is a specific bond. <laughs> that, uh, should be acknowledged. And Michael O'Donoghue used to say that everyone who drank from the lemonade tree was different than everybody else, and I'm very <laughs> right, happy. I to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> own own the the lemonade tree difference. With Lorraine, but it is true. Uncle Bernice was amazing. <laughs> now I kind of want to. I want to go there. <laughs> oh, yeah, me gone. too. <laughs> the, you know, if we could have one of those Twilight Zone episodes where you know we just fa- find ourselves back in time, that would be interesting. Uh, 
Well, see, that's the magic of, of writing and storytelling. You guys could make it so. <laughs> well, hey, that's we, one of I'm the amazing game. things about Lorraine is that between the voices that she does, because for me, listening to her telling of these stories is like listening to a one-woman show because she does so many voices. Mm-hmm. And also, I was so thrilled because the it's told by a narrator, and the narrator sounds a little bit like me, and Lorraine sort of knows what I sound like. Um, and yes, uh, the idea, a cadence what? unlike anything you've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Very unique but the, but the idea that also Listening Library wanted Lorraine Newman to do it, and they wanted it to be a female um, reading the book, was, I thought, such a nice nod to the glass ceiling that she broke, to the idea that you can have a female moderator, uh, not moderate, narrator. Because mm-hmm. um, usually those stories have classically been told in a man's voice. Yeah. Um, we're going to get to that in a second. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you, Amy, what, if you can recall, what first put you on... Um, that road to writing and storytelling was it just a natural result of your family and, and and the upbringing that you had, or was there like a specific aha moment where you said this? No, this is what I want to do. You mean I've always written? Yeah, I have a number of adult books that I've written. Right, I wrote when I was a kid, so all my sisters do write. Um, we didn't all write when we were kids. I like always wrote. It was just a thing I did. And then for a while I was an executive. Part of what put me on the road of this is that when I was very young, I worked at Sesame Street and the Electric Company doing books and records and toys and games. And I also have a ton of credits on the Electric Company reading show that the Children's Television Workshop did and did a lot of those hand puppets and stuff when I was... uh, Mm-hmm. I was really young when that happened. but um, And then I was um, one of the producers of A Little Princess, and I've always loved classi- classical children's lit. And what's happening now is there's a lot of dystopic fiction, and then there's also real-life problems. And I wanted to do what I call a modern-day mashup of an old-fashioned children's book. And that's kind of what they are. And Lorraine is also this giant horror buff as well. And she believes in alternate universes. Am I lying? Uh, yes, you are. But <laughs> I, I don't believe in alternate universes, but I am fascinated by the prospect of it. And I will go see practically any horror movie that is, you know, out there. Um, and I actually, well, this is, Never mind, it was just a sidetrack. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know that I necessarily believe in alternate universes, but the one that Amy created in these books enchants me. Yeah. Okay, Thank wait. You. I, I, I have to ask. you like all horror movies, or is there a limit? Well, um, I draw the. I don't necessarily like found footage, although there are really good ones. And, um, Although I feel like the first Saw and the first Hostel were really good, the rest is kind of like torture porn. Yeah. And it's like an endurance test. How long can you keep your eyes open? Yeah. 
don't see, like that. Yeah, see, those don't hold any appeal to me. Like, I like I like suspenseful horror. I like, you know, edge of your seat. Like, you don't know what's going to happen next. Monsters. I like that kind of thing. But when it's just, like, gore for the sake of gore, that doesn't do anything for me. I like space yeah. horror. Like, Event Horizon is one of my favorite horror movies. Yes, that's <laughs> a great one. But we're sidetracking. <laughs> no, well, we're not really sidetracking because I have a secret, which is that secretly I've sold the third one, and it's called The Other Side of the Wall. And they check into a hotel with Aunt Evie and Tess sees somebody who might not be there. And so I kind of veer oh, into yeah. And I'm pretty excited about the prospect of Lorraine possibly reading that one, too. It's well, also not sidetracking so because... I had a question about injecting horror into children's fantasy and how to do that without scaring them so badly that they don't want to come back for more. Well, you know, Walt Disney had said that kids love to be scared, and he's right about that. Um, You know, I I don't know uh, whether or not he meant, you know, the kind of scare that can actually happen. But he certainly had scares in his movies. You know, Bambi, you Mm. know, for instance, the idea of losing a mother. Or even in Snow White, the witch and all that kind of stuff. And I think he's right about that. Was that something that was important for you, Amy, as you were writing the story? Like, was there, do you want to have part of it? Well, there's a whole ethical subset for me for these stories. And there's some rules. Mm-hmm. It's like in the Castle in the Mist, for example, there really isn't a conventional antagonist. And that's on purpose. I think that there's so much going on in the world right now that we don't necessarily need that. There's a kind of conventional antagonist in Carnival Magic, or one or two, actually. But um, they're never in... There will never be explosions or guns or real risk of, even though it looks like it. There's, I, I wanted to take a step back to something because I think it's, it's, um, we're, we're in very interesting times. Yeah. And I'd like, I'm trying to create a little series that's got fantasy and believes in pushing the envelope in certain ways but I really don't want to go anywhere near um, serious, explosive danger. No pyrotechnics. I also think it's exciting that Amy's characters, especially her female character protagonist, is very powerful. You know, she's very bold (coughs) and willing to try things. And to the best of my knowledge, you know, although I don't read current, you know, uh, child fiction, or not child fiction, but young adult, um, is it considered young adult? Middle grade. Okay. Yeah. They I, call I it middle grade, which is that. what we used to call literary <laughs> fiction. Okay. It's just a different well, label. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, well, now I've lost my point. But, Uh-oh. Um, yeah. No, I was saying, I, I don't really feel like I've seen many characters like the ones that um, Amy creates. And <coughs> Um, was that shift for you though, Amy, the, the, the shift in audience, um, you, you have written for adults, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes it's just a label, but when you writing for adults and writing, especially for middle grade and not young adult, quote unquote, 
uh, is very different. So w- was that shift for you creatively demanding or did you find that you, f- you fell into it pretty naturally? I, I think I knew the story I wanted to tell. I knew I, that I wanted to write about siblings, a subject I know a great deal about. <laughs> and Lorraine is actually a twin. So the Baranova twins in um, the second book, she probably relates to a little bit too. And there's a thing about siblings for me where you can be kind of mean to each other or you could have a fight or something, but when push comes to shove, man, you've got each other's backs. And that's also the way I feel about my close friends, and it's one of the reasons why this thing with Lorraine was so meaningful to me also. But I wanted to write about sibling relationships, and that certainly wasn't a stretch. Um, I also feel that in some ways... Tess and Max are put into situations where they have to make decisions, almost as if they're grown-ups, even though Tess rushes into situations she may sh- maybe shouldn't rush into. Um, but then they run tapes in their heads of things that their parents told them. And so there's a lot of interior monologue. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of description. I've written a lot of period books, so for me, because... A Cup of Tea is set in 1918 in New York and Europe. And so for me, a fantasy world or a child's world in Hampshire where there is no Wi-Fi, honestly, there isn't. Um, It's really annoying. Um, (laughs) um, Wasn't that big a stretch because you pull in all those things, sight, sound, what people are eating, the choice of clothes they have. it wasn't that big a stretch in a way because I've done so much period writing. And I even think contemporary fiction, if you're writing in the 80s or the 90s or 2018, which I did here, is a form of period writing. So I think all of that came into play, and it didn't feel like a stretch to mm-hmm. me. But, um, you know, I don't know how Lorraine felt about doing 12 characters at once. That was really amazing <laughs> to watch. I love But doing she's it. done so many characters, and I'm going to throw it to her, that was doing a children's piece, although you're doing so much of it with animation. You know, Lorraine's doing a lot of voiceover animation, so I'm going to throw this to her, too. Um, was, was that a stretch or, or, when you segued into animation um, with oh from no no i you know coming from the groundlings that was what i did i did characters uh at the groundlings so that was a natural uh move for me and um i loved the opportunity i cherished the opportunity that amy gave me uh to do something like this where i got to do uh, lots of characters, you know. I, I love doing dialects. I've always been fascinated by them. And Amy, <laughs> she sure gave me a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Was this this is the first, or I guess the first two audiobooks you've done? Uh, yes. So how does that compare? I mean, you're sitting in a booth by yourself, doing voices, reading. How does that compare? Wait, I'm there. They let me in. There's a director. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, you've done you just you've done a ton of work in animation, um, and so it's it's kind of similar, but not. I know. So I'm just wondering, how did that compare for you, coming from these years and years of animation work to sitting and doing an audiobook? It felt like uh, the way I used to read to my children, mm. which I always loved doing, 
And so uh, a part of what was exciting for me was imbuing the narrative with action. Um, it was something, again, that I never had the chance to do, uh, something that Amy gave me the chance to do. And I absolutely adore it. And, of course, in animation, that's not, you know, something that you you do. You just do the voices, which, of course, I also adore. But mm-hmm. um, this this is the difference. And I, I took to it immediately. I just, I love that. And in Carnival Magic, for example, there's a lot of action. But there's also a sequence when Tess first, not to spoiler, but when the horse becomes real mm-hmm. um, in the castle in the mist and jumps the hedge, and Lorraine reads about jumping the hedge, she said to me, "Go ahead," that it was one of the things you oh, always. Oh, well, it was. You know, that was a moment of horror. I mean, I don't know if I can do spoilers about you know castle in the mist, but. Um, you know, I'm a tough crowd, as I say, with horror. I, I, I can deal with a lot. And the the place behind the hawthorn trees was one of the scariest things I've ever read. And, of course, I loved it. <laughs> the uh, first time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was remarkable to me. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing. And um, I was just amazed because I also don't know that aspect of Amy. I've never... Really, even though I appreciate and love her writing and, and have been a fan for many, many years, I'd never seen anything like that. I've never seen her do that. And it was just ass-kicking. It was so great. <laughs> As part of that, um, and this is kind of for both of you in turns, I guess, um, It's a very, the, both Castle in the Mist and Carnival Magic are in a, it's a very unique style because it's, pared down but it's also conversational and it's childlike but it's also sophisticated um the only thing i could really think of to compare it to was um ocean at the end of the lane by neil gaiman um how did you come to that style for these sort of contemporary fairy tales in particular and then how does that then translate into the voice work for it for me i think when i was a kid and even now and movies, I feel the same way. I'm like, I live in a fantasy world to some degree. I think that the people in books are real. I think that somewhere Mistlethwaite exists, the place where the secret garden takes place. I think that um, Miss Minchin is real, that there's a boarding school where Sarah Crew from A Little Princess was. I even think Oz is real if I could get there. And I feel the same way about a lot of adult fiction, that some of it is so um, capturing. And what I wanted to do is people have joked to me about The Castle in the Mist and Carnival Magic to some degree, that they're 8 to 80. That I've had a number of friends who are older who sat down with the first book. The second one's really new, so I don't have a lot of feedback yet. Um, and said, I meant to read three pages and I couldn't leave the house. And I went, yes, because what (laughs) I wanted to do was take you into that world. And so I also thought that the choice that Listening Library made to ask Lorraine to do all the voices, which at first completely astonished me, because I thought, oh, man, really? Um, 
uh, thought I may not have shared with you, Lorraine. Um, was was great because for me, um, and I, it was also a very difficult choice to not go dystopic, to not go to, I wanted to do, I'm really serious about this, a contemporary version of an old-fashioned um, fairy tale like Half Magic or, you know, something like that. And it wasn't, I didn't, there wasn't a lot of that on the market. And it was one of the reasons why Penguin got excited because they said, oh my gosh, we've been looking for a book at Philomel like this for um, 10 years. Mm. And I was like, really? Okay. And I'd written the whole thing because I thought I was new. And usually as a well-known writer, you can get an advance earlier in a book. But I thought I better write this whole thing. And so I wrote the whole thing before I sold the first one because I wanted to show them that I actually thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> even, I, you know, even if I was the only one who thought so. I had to write the whole thing. But then the choice that they made which is so akin to the way I feel about reading, to have Lorraine then enact um, the voices and also the settings, as in Jumping the Hawthorne Trees, and I'll throw it to you. To me? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, um, <clears throat> again, you know, I, uh, I love doing characters. I love doing dialects. Uh, caveat, you know, some of them are kind of $1.98 dialects. Others are more accurate, but um, I worked with a dialect coach for some of them. Some I already know, but that was that was a big pleasure for me. Yeah. And my favorite is actually when Lorraine does Tara because there's a psychic in the second book who kind of carries through the book even when we're not sure where they are. And it was, she did this amazing version of like Glinda the Good, but maybe she's evil. Mm. Um, and then you can't really tell which one she is. And she actually may be the only character that carries over into the third book, because these are companion books. In the first book, they go to the castle, and they're all those people. In the second book, they go to the carnival in a whole different part of England, and they're all those people, and none of the characters cross over, except for Tess and Max and Aunt Evie and their parents who are off in the distance. And the same thing to some degree is true of the third one that is due really soon. Um, <laughs> um, except I think I want to bring Tara in, and partly it was because Lorraine so nailed Tara and the whole notion of touching the sky, which for me is about female empowerment. Believing in magic is about female and male empowerment, believing that you can do something that if you wish for something, it might come true, that you have to be aware of what you wish for, that if you fight strongly enough for your own goals, even if someone tells you <coughs> you might not be able to do something, and I don't mean scale a building or do something you know, ridiculous like that. I'm just saying find your own voice, find your own way, and believe in yourself. And there will be people who come along in your life who say, mm, really? Mm. Because I think, there were people who came along when I said I was writing these and went, really? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and I, Lorraine, I'm sure you ran into that, too, Well, there's something at times in life. Yeah. You know, 
An example is uh, you climb a very high tree, and then once you're up in that branch, you realize, wow, I'm afraid of heights. You you think, well, this is the end. I'm finished. I'm dying. And then you make it. And little increments of accomplishments like that, that you're, you're by yourself and you get out of a situation that you didn't know you could get out of, that you were capable of getting out of, that's really, I think, what makes a very confident child. And, you know, um, these kind of things are modeled in this book. Even though we're dealing with something that's magical, their approach to getting out of these situations, especially Tess, um, is a, a technique that any child could use. And again, you know, it does foster a tremendous amount of confidence. Is that one of the reasons Thank it's you. important for the the adults to be for lack of a better term out of the way although thank you for not killing the parents because everybody <laughs> always kills the parents there's nothing so romantic to people about dead parents <laughs> so many dead parents <laughs> I, I, yeah i know and you didn't know which way that was going to go either which was really um that could have gone either way um <sighs> but i think one of the things that's that's more true about this in a way is that one of the things they do is Max, first of all, is very analytical and he keeps trying to make sense of everything. And sometimes that's actually helpful. But they both run tapes in their heads of things that their parents taught them, that their dad taught them. It could be something your teacher teaches you. So that when you're in a situation where you have to make a critical decision of some kind, you have to bring forth things that people have told you along the way. And I think it's an essential part of parenting um, that you don't necessarily need to learn from life lessons that sometimes your parents give you tips along the way. And one of the things I think Tess and Max do is they carry their parents with them and their parents' knowledge with them and the things their dad has said to them, like if you get lost, right, you know, all of those things that empower them because they've been taught that they might be in a situation where they need to make a decision by yourself, and all kids do need to make a decision by themselves at some point, at school, at this, at that. And part of parenting, I think, is helping kids have the ability to assess a situation. And that was really important to me. Um, not to be preachy. Am I being preachy? You're not being preachy at all. No, no, that's why I asked. Not that that my kids haven't gotten into so much trouble, you you wouldn't even believe it. um, (laughs) Mom! I'm sorry. Um, the, The first two books, we can talk about the third one separately, but the first two books, they came out a year apart, so I have to assume that there was a little bit of, maybe not overlap, but you wrote them kind of around the same time. Did you have both stories in mind when you began, or did, this, did, did, did the second one sort of spin out and develop as you were writing the first one? No, no, the first one was fin- way finished when I started the second one. Okay. And the third one, um, I wish I was further along on, because it's due September 15th, <laughs> and it will be out. <laughs> I know, don't laugh, and I'm sort of still on tour. Um and the second one I came up with after I'd finished Carnival Magic, but they spun out. The kids are getting a little bit older, 
And so one of the reasons Carnival Magic's a little more active, um, pushes the envelope even more, um, is because they're a little bit older. And in a funny way, the third book is a little bit simpler, but more sophisticated, too. Mm. I can't explain it because you push the envelope somewhere else yeah. to the other side of the wall. I'm curious. You said that you were in the booth while Lorraine was recording. Did I was in? Well, she was in. The, oh, yeah, in in the other room. I yeah, was yeah, in yeah. the control. Yes, yeah. It, yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant. Um, did did she bring anything to the performance or to the story? I guess, more generally speaking, that you hadn't quite realized was even there, even though you wrote it. When she, for the, I mean, when she did that thing where the horse jumps. Yeah. I was just like, I was dumbstruck. I really was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, and I hadn't realized, I mean, I'd, I'd realized the power of the telling voice when I wrote it, but I just didn't realize what it was. And she brought an emotion to that that was completely amazing. And similarly to the end, and both of the books are really about people who have broken hearts when they walk in in some way. And she managed to do the arc of the books so that the emotional arc is throughout the piece. And then you get yeah. um, no parents dying. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. We've already said that. Yeah. But, um, right. So um, um, there are people who are already dead when it starts, though. Let's be honest. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, that that happens, but yeah, I mean, Shiri is right. Yeah. We, 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 in, in fantasy and in children's literature, it's, it's, it's not even funny anymore. You know, how, how often well, we just get shunted aside. And it's usually... But there's also a musical undertone to this, and Lorraine actually has a huge, vast knowledge of music, and I do this weird thing where there are different sounds at the carousel, there's this, there's that, and Lorraine has a kind of musical gift as well and a great deal of musical knowledge that also, I think, impacted the way she told the story. But I'll let you address that, Lorraine. That it had a kind of, it has a kind of, for me, a baseline. Well, you know, I think the setting uh, sets us up for a certain sound. And, you know, uh, there's music and dialects. Each specific dialect has a song to it. Even, you know, like the newscaster I did on SNL, uh, I was copying that cadence that I heard that I thought was so funny. You know, you know, and it's the same with uh, dialects. And uh, so I think that uh, that's the musical aspect from my perspective. Yeah. Um. I know you're you're racing against the deadline for a third one, but how how many stories in this world with these characters do you think are inside? Well, at the moment there are three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're just gonna leave it at that. Well, let's not get at ahead of ourselves. Moment, there are three. I don't know. We'll see. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like we're at the beginning, and it's also a new world for me, and so I so appreciate, you know, both of you liking it and liking us. Um, <laughs> And um, you don't know how things are going to turn out. And I, I don't know. I need to get through book three. And then that comes out not till September 2019. Right. And so the paperback of Carnival Magic will probably come up. Or 
November maybe will come out that fall too. So um, I, I can't think. I like I said when I wrote the Castle in the Mist, I didn't know there was going to be a second one. Mm-hmm. And the second one is the next summer. The third one, partly because they're getting older, is um, Christmas break, and they've been sent back to Switzerland, and they meet Aunt Evie at a hotel. Um, I was just in about London, and their parents are supposed to join them, but of course their plane gets delayed. I was actually just about to ask if the third one is also set in England, and then ask if there's something particularly attractive about setting these fairy tale stories in in Europe or in the UK specifically. I think for two, there are two things about it. One is I wanted to take American kids that were very recognizable in some way, and I wanted to put them in an atmosphere where uh, initially there was no Wi-Fi and there wasn't anything to do. And the other thing about Hampshire particularly is it's very magical all by itself, and I knew it really well, and it just kind of worked for me. And then the second one, it just happened that they stayed. And I, I can't imagine... We talked for a minute about taking the third one and seeing if we could move it to New York, or at least I did. And um, I was told no, specifically by my publisher. No, we like it where <laughs> well, it is. I, you know what? I think that there is something about an older culture that lends That's itself what... more to this kind of enchantment. And there's something about England and ghosts, yeah. you know, yeah. um, which, which is where the third book goes a little bit. And in the first book, there's something about England and magic and the idea of a magical castle in some way that I don't know. I, I don't know where a castle is. I, don't <laughs> I spent I spent a semester in Ireland and the whole country's haunted. So I, I can see that. <laughs> wow. Did you love it? Did you I did love it. I did love it. Yeah. Yeah. And this also takes place in Wales, too. Right. Sort of. We think. We're not sure. <laughs> have you... Have and, you... you know, there's a lot of is it real or is it imagined? Because, I mean, I think that's part of it, too. And one of the things I was hoping to do, and I think Lorraine helped in large regard to this as well, is push kids' imagination. Just push it. Just push it. And one of the things I do when I go to um, schools now is I ask sometimes, because we do a Q&A, if you were inventing a fantasy world, what would you put in it? And the answers that I get are so interesting. And it, and it causes them to think about what would make up. It's like a little writing lesson. What would make up a fantasy world for you? What constitutes a character? What are the attributes of a character? Is it what they eat? What they So it, that's been really fun, going around the country and speaking to kids, because I've been going to a lot of schools, has been amazing. Yeah, and I, I was it's gonna also ask, been really what I was going to ask you about that because that's got to be different from you know when you do a book tour or marketing for a quote unquote adult book. You know, going into a school and talking to kids and especially kids who have read and love the book that you wrote is just an entirely different experience. And it, often you're talking to somebody to kids who haven't read the book yet, mm-hmm. and so I go in with a PowerPoint and talk about and talk to them about whether they believe in magic, and half of them do, whether anyone's ever had a Monopoly board thrown at them. Lorraine, have you ever had a Monopoly board thrown at you? 
You mean out of frustration or a ghost? Yes. <laughs> yes. Frustration? <laughs> 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 yeah. A ghost. Um, you know, that's never happened to me. Gosh darn it. When is it going to happen? Th- that's like one of those have bucket ever- list items. you got to get that checked off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you ever thrown one? No, I haven't. No, I haven't oh, okay. that you're, you're, okay. in Monopoly. <laughs> right. But there are a lot of things like that. And then I also tried a little bit um, in terms of language. And it's something Frances Hodgson Burnett did in um, The Secret Garden, where if she used a very, very complicated word, she would sometimes explain it as well. And so there's a little bit of a push there. To, there, there was a lot of thought that went into how to construct these um, and what lessons could be learned from them if there were any and believing in magic and believing in yourself. It's like the hashtag for Carnival Magic is Touch the Sky. Yeah. And there are aerial ballet twins, which is one thing. They can touch the sky and Tess may think she did a dance in the stars once. I'm not sure. Um, but it's also about empowerment and believing in yourself. Which are the best kinds of stories. And like you said, we need, we need more stories with those messages and fewer that um, just have the villain. You know, the villain that it could be pulled out of the news from this morning, perhaps. Uh, yes. <laughs> God, slowly I turn. <laughs> I want to uh, go off the rails here for just a second before we let you go. Lorraine, I'm going to geek out for just a second, but you were in Follow That Bird. Yes, I was Mommy Dodo. <laughs> you were Mommy Dodo. That was the, oh, God, that was fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one of those things where... Um, they just went straight through, so we were all exhausted. But that exhaustion laugh is, yeah. is just, oh, it's so good. Were you in the costume, or were you? did you just do the voice? No. just did the voice. Just the voice. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love, and I didn't oh. know that until I started, you know, I read up on you guys for this. And I love, part of the thing that, one of the things I love so much about doing interviews for this show is all the little things that I learn. And I understand this was just a job for you, what, 40 years ago, 35 years ago. But like, Follow That Bird was was huge when I was a little kid, you know? And and when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, she was in Follow That Bird. (laughs) And we have have dug out, my my kids are eight um, and almost six, and we have dug out for them the old electric company stuff. So they've (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> and they love that's it. They'll they'll go cool. look for it themselves now. That's oh, great. great. See, everything goes full circle. So you know, it's uh-huh. like we're we're geeking out. Our kids will geek out. So it's it's amazing. <laughs> uh, well, I just want to say thank you for believing yeah, in you, magic, Francis. which I am assuming you do. Do you believe in magic? Oh, absolutely. I'm now going to ask I do. what I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and. You know, um, and I want to thank Lorraine for being amazing. Oh, quit it, Mom! You're embarrassing me! (laughs) This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care.